You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. It's way over time for another digital noise. I'm sorry. It got away from me. You know what? December specifically is a tough month for film critics because they're like, here's all the movies in the world and you have to watch them because you're part of a critics association. I'm like, "Uh, okay. And then all the production, the companies that send out home releases are like, oh, it's Christmas time. We sell more stuff. Here's all the movies in the world. I'm like, oh no, it's everything at once. And then your family's like. Come to Florida, like, three times. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Well, anyway, I finally got through all the digital noise titles, and here we are with the first of several probably more or less in a row digital noise episodes. Joining me is Aaron. Hello, sir. What, what? Hello. Good to be back. And you know what? I say it's it's 2022 now. We're year three of the pandemic. Let, let's forgive a little tardiness. It's just... We're all just surviving now. You say that. I don't know how the people who sent me the Blu-rays say, feel about it. Probably not quite so Fair nice. Of, yeah. So we're a little behind on getting to some stuff for sure. But hey, we're here to knock out a whole bunch of it and some really good stuff in this episode as yeah, well. Some legit good stuff. This was a good stack altogether. Yeah, man. It's fucking right. Right. Who also does digital noise is always like. How come Aaron always gets the good stacks? I'm like, it's not on purpose. It just, it's all timing on date on release. He's like, uh huh. Cause like Chris. last release, he had like eight fantastic movies and I get mine and it's all like poopy British film from the seventies about serial killer. <laughs> uh, he's lying. Chris gives me all the good things. Just <laughs> well, his blowjobs are fantastic. Anyway, I, I am really good. <laughs> uh so let's get into this and start off with a set that i man i i it's been so long now since i started watching it that i feel like i could start all over again and watch it because it was so long which is criterion's once upon a time in china box set now what's cool about this is that this is the complete Once Upon a Time in China, which means it's like the first five movies that are labeled Once Upon a Time in China and then a number. And then it's the follow-up years later, uh, a few later years after the last one, they did Once Upon a Time in China in America, which is still same character. It's following Wong Fei Hung, who is literally the most filmed character or single person in the history of cinema or television. Nobody has had as many movies made about them as Wong Fei Hung. He kind of started off the martial arts film industry. I mean, it wasn't like the very first martial arts film in China, but it was like one of them. And that guy who played the role in there went on to play the role like 75 more times in 75 movies. He basically played it 
every single time. Like that was his yeah. career, which is amazing. Yeah, and this is all pre-proper Shaw Brothers, like the stuff that most people have seen. You know, this is old black and white stuff. But since then, a number of people have come on and interpreted this role, done different versions of it. Certainly, you might even be familiar with probably the most famous, although most people wouldn't associate the name Wong Fei uh, Hung with it, is Drunken Master with Jackie Chan, Drunken yes. Master 1 and 2. That is a very irreverent and non-accurate take on it. Because for one thing, there actually was no such thing as drunken boxing, apparently. That was all just totally made up. Don't don't ruin it for us all, Chris. Don't ruin sorry. it. Sorry. So, sorry. I mean, it's cool looking at it all. But, uh, but this series is, uh, Once Upon a Time in China, is a teensy bit more based on history. I mean... Wong Fei Hung, okay. he's played by Jet Li in the first through third and the sixth films in this series, and then Vincent Zhao in the fourth and, fourth and fifth scenes films. And he also, in fact, Vincent Zhao played it in a television series that went on for a year about the character. That And these are all sort of in order, sort of like they're chronological. Like you'd think like a lot of Chinese films that like, can be a series but have very little to do with each other. This is decidedly the same character all the way through, and they're all in chronological order of how it happened. And they're all pretty much about Jesus fucking Westerners suck. <laughs> well, uh, uh, it's also, uh, and local racist people suck. Like it's always Is either a one? Westerner villain or, yeah. or straight up like local racist and two of them. Is it two of them? Okay. Well, it, it's two of them, but, but one of them is half racists and half Westerners. So. Right. Well, and the the other sideline here is first off, he's got a number of assistants that are with him. Some of them are like uh, Yuan Biao is one of the the big three uh, who came from the Peking Opera along with Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung. He plays the role of sort of the major sidekick who's always kind of looking how to make a buck on his own and and is really into the female love interest for Wong Fei Hung as well. 13th aunt played by Rosamund Kwan and all but one of the films. But so anyway, somebody else comes on and takes on the role after Yen Biao for the whole rest of them. But then there's another another guy at Bucktooth and then there's this dude who comes in later as a villain but like Wong Fei Hung so thoroughly kicks his ass. He's just like, I want to be your student now and he becomes a good guy and, and keeps on going through the movies uh i mean it it like it's the weirdest thing about you don't expect is that it does continue and that it's kind of a romantic comedy at points because wong fei hung's really into 13th aunt and she's really into wong fei hung and she's all westernized because she went to america for several years and came back and he's kind of like i want to be a good guy and like be accepting of things i don't understand but it's like trying to give your put your grandfather in front of a computer and teach them how to use the internet, right? They're just like, ah, this is frustrating and I don't get it. And now I'm starting to get angry. I don't want to be angry, but Jesus, why can't they make this easier? It's kind of like he is with with Western stuff. Although that, that tends to be the through line that you track with the stories because each individual movie is its own unique story. They don't really carry over villains or plots. What they do carry over is his romance with 13th Ant. Mm -hmm. And his slow, eventual comfort with the American culture, and even to the point where, like, he travels to America in the final one. Mm. Yes, uh, you know, in, in the Wild West, mind you, because this did take place a while ago. But 
you know, I, I think that the the real highlight here is the first film still. I mean, this is by the bulk of these are by Chewie Hark, who is kind of a legend in Hong Kong cinema. He's the guy who kind of brought wuxia, like sort of more of the wire foo, but not designed to look as wiry. You know, it's not like Crouching Tiger type wire foo. But um, he kind of brought that back with these movies when it had become out of style for a while. And these were all monster hits. The first Once Upon a Time in China is incredible. Watching some of the bonus features in here, you're just like, I can't believe they just kind of figured this shit out as they went. I mean, they're incredibly choreographed and planned scenes, but they're not doing it like months ahead of time. Some of them, like there's a scene in there where they're fighting on really tall ladders and they're like flipping them around and jumping. Like that's all practical work. There's no no CG back then. Uh, And Jet Li's foot was broken. (laughs) (laughs) which is insane. And they were like, okay, well now what if we do this? And they were just kind of figuring out as they went and going, okay, let's see how we can figure it out. And they said that whole, just one scene in the movie took like, I think they said like eight weeks or something to film that one scene. That's just insane. So I would actually argue for the second being the best of the series. Like, I think one is a legitimately good movie and then three and four are are okay. Um, But Two is when they've started to really figure out how they're going to film these sequences mm-hmm. and they get a lot more ambitious. Uh, like the, the final act of this movie is just a series of escalating fights that begin with a guy who doesn't touch the ground and is being carried around on various tables stacked on top of each other. And every time he moves in the fight, they restack the tables in sequence over and over and over and over again. Which is and like a, a metaphor for the shakiness of religious it, cults. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most impressive physical stunts sequences I've ever seen. It's also when they get a little more comfortable with the violence, and they get a little bloodier and more intense without getting like super, super bloody like uh, Part 5 does, I believe. Yeah. Which is still, I think, a legitimately good movie. I think three and four are the, the nadir. Uh, well, it's fu- funny that three, they're both good, They but it's like, okay, so three takes up this whole thing about lion dancing, and you've seen it, you know, where they've got the big sort of lion puppets, and they're shaking around and stuff, and like, you know, I mean, they dance is, with at festivals. So there's a whole plot there with like, oh, we got to win the lion festival thing. And then you think, okay, well, that was cute and all, but I kind of think it was time to get back to the martial arts, and four is like, fuck that, we're doing more lion festival. Yeah, like, the whole thing. Uh, and you know three and four are the ones that don't have uh jet lee in them either right so you're like four and five i'm sorry four and five you're right you're right four and five he apparently his contract was up and he just was like a free agent after that and so that's why he wasn't in four and five but he comes back for once upon a time in china and america part six which fun fact for everyone out there was filmed about three and a half hours west of where chris and i are sitting right now yep yep yeah uh um the and you know it kind of reminded me of what's that jackie chan western one? Oh god high noon no something no. Sa- S- shanghai noon shanghai noon yes yeah, yeah. there's a- aspects that are familiar in fact uh, and shanghai noon almost certainly took from but you know five and six are both kind of the i mean there's comedy aspects in all of these but they're the ones that most overtly feel like they're playing with the comedic yeah. goofiness of it um and th- like i said they're all good i like every single one of these most certainly i'm not damning with faint praise even three and four are like wow there's some really good stuff in here it's just when you compare them to the other ones you're like okay it's just not as good as those. yeah too much lion dancing is all i mean if you're really into li- lion and by the way i'm saying lion dancing to be clear it's not a bunch of chinese people lining up to country music and going back and forth <laughs> i'd watch that though 
it'd be interesting. I could see you turn that into martial arts at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the nice things about the set is it comes with a really nice booklet with several essays about the films, and then just a incredible just buttload of extras that that come with each one of these films. Um, some of which are dated older ones, uh, but are still really, really good. Like there is a, a new uh, look at sort of uh, there's a new look at 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 the, all of the films in here uh, by uh, uh, with Chewie Hark discussing the whole series for like 15 minutes. But I don't know. Each one of these has sort of like different takes on things. I really enjoyed Jet Li doing a bit on one of them where he talks about the relationship, his relationship to Buddhism and how it informed his place uh, as a martial artist, martial artist and in the Once Upon a Time in China films, which is really cool. Yeah. yeah. I unfortunately didn't get to watch any of the special features, but I was reading through the booklet. Uh, and just it's nice to have the tidbits that you have. And Criterion, as always, does a really amazing job with the packaging. This is one that I actually kind of blind bought because uh, <laughs> even though I'd never seen the series, I was pretty sure they were up my alley. Um, but yeah, definitely recommend this. Yeah, it's quite good. If you've never seen these, I mean, they're if you're like, I don't know if I like martial arts films that much. These are so artistically done and they're so beautiful and they're also really, really funny as hell at points and pretty easy to follow. And you're kind of getting a weird sort of political perspective on China in this period of time. What was going on? Because they're all incredibly political, like fiercely so, which is delightful to see. Yeah. But like at the same time, don't worry, martial arts fans, because their ass kicking is like (laughs) nothing else. Like it's still today. You rarely see ass kicking as well shot and as well performed as you see in the Once Upon a Time in China films. I mean, I put it right up there with against the Matrix and go like, yeah, this is the action. It's as good as that. Oh, definitely. Even as much as I enjoyed the newest Matrix movie, it's better than that. Uh, this is some amazingly filmed sequences. Well, to be fair, everything is better than the newest okay, Matrix fair. film. So, I liked it. <laughs> you think you liked it? That's okay. <laughs> you're, I'm going to assume you were on heroin. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Apparently, I live a very interesting life. <laughs> you do live a very interesting <laughs> life. All right. Well, let's move on to something that's not a martial arts film, but never fear martial arts fans. We'll be back with more at the end of the episode. We're talking about Kino Lorber's 4K restoration, but on Blu-ray. So weird the way they do that. You're like, why not just put out a fucking 4K disc? But of of the film The Long Goodbye, which I've always been a big fan of. It's funny that this is the Altman film, Robert Altman film, that Altman fans like go either way on. They either think it's one of his very best or one of his very worst. And for me, this is one of his very best. But... I love where it's coming from. I love the original Philip Marlowe character, which Elliot Gould's playing here, the Raymond Chandler character. It's based on his 1953 novel uh, of the same name. Uh, it's written by Leigh Brackett, who co-wrote the, the adaptation of The Big Sleep in 1946, which, to my mind, is the best Philip Marlowe adaptation. Elliot Gould is great. And really, this whole thing is kind of a... like It's like the Big Lebowski Zero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, like, you've seen this movie done several times since then. The Big Lebowski or um, uh, that Paul Thomas Anderson movie that I keep forgetting the name of. Because it was a terrible, so I understand. <laughs> Fair. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, this idea of the down-on-his-luck private eye who really never figures out the mystery and is just chasing clue after frustrating clue after frustrating clue without ever entirely getting 
ever the whole picture or really his own involvement in it. Yeah, he's like, so he's not like the Big Lebowski in the sense that he's like, I could care less, man. Uh, why, why is anyone talking to me? This is ridiculous. He's actually a private eye and is, you know, tall, seemingly good at what he does normally, but he's kind of hapless because literally it's just insane that the situation is playing out the way it is. And he's like, wait a minute, why am I... Why am I in the middle of this, but in a different way than Lebowski is? I mean, it's very comparable because they're both set in L.A. They're both about really shallow Hollywood people uh, and crime going on in Hollywood. I mean, there's so much of a connection that there's just no way that the big Lebowski, when they wrote that, they hadn't just watched this movie. And the other part is that he is a genuinely good guy and that so many of the decisions he makes are motivated by him going okay, random person who I don't really have much of a connection to, I will help you out. You know, I will go to the store to pick up uh, stuff for random naked sunbathers and uh, stuff like that. So it, it feels like he himself is going, no, no, I don't want to be in this. This is stupid as shit, but God, and it is what it is I'm going to find out. It's one of those where, like, there's all this different shit going on, and somehow it's tied together. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, wait, what? And in weird ways, like, the whole time he's just like, I just want to find my fucking cat. Can someone tell me where my fucking cat is, please? I'd really appreciate it. Uh, and there's just this... Uh, well, first off, this is one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's first appearances. He doesn't yep. even have any dialogue, but he's like a like a, a, a local hood who works for one of the guys here. But there's just... So much wackiness with the way the characters are being played. The guy who's like the rich alcoholic novelist in this, um, uh, Sterling Hayden plays. And oh my God, he's just a riot. He's like this guy who's like clearly intentionally drinking him to death, himself to death, but not like Nicolas Cage. He's like, oh, I'm going to have a great time drinking myself to death. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, man. I just found this fun. It's very meandering, but it's supposed to be meandering. That's so, kind of the point. It's the part that works because Altman famously makes movies that are just kind of long and methodical and they don't really like snap. They just kind of linger and the mm. camera work just drifts from scene to scene. People aren't always in frame. And this is very much all of that, but like mixed with a zany comedy. Yeah. So it, that combination works really well. I, I love the heck out of this, too. It was a great fun. And soundtrack by John Williams, that the main theme of this has gone on to be covered by any number of famous like artists and jazz artists and stuff. It's kind of like a very iconic theme in and of itself. But yeah, and this looks great. Uh, there's there Actually, I know not all Kino Lorber releases have an awful lot of special features. They usually have like a commentary, but that's about it. This actually has some good stuff here with a documentary about The Long Goodbye made in 2002 that's here that was originally done for the DVD release of the film. Uh, there is a archival program with a cinematographer who talks about his relationship with the director. There is another archival program with writer and filmmaker David Thompson, who edited Altman on Altman, the, the presumably the book Altman on Altman, uh, and produced Altman, Robert Altman in England for the BBCs, who talks about him in this history. There's an archival program with Tom Williams, an, Tom Williams, an author of A Mysterious Something in the Light, Raymond Chandler, A Life, who's obviously taking a look at Philip Marlowe and, and uh, Chandler's works. There's Maxim Jakubowski on hard-boiled fiction, which is a, he's a crime writer, critic, and editor. There's American Cinematographer article, which is uh, from that magazine discussing the cinematography f uh 
flashing technique and the way it makes it this this film specifically look the way that it does, which is obviously put it on here in text format. There's an archival episode of Trailers from Hell. Uh, uh, there's a new commentary recorded by critic Tim Lucas and then promotional materials and have a reversible cover with vintage postage art. This is good stuff. Am I wrong? Oh, sorry, there was an audio glitch. I, I lost you for a second. No, you are not wrong. It's a legitimately good set. <laughs> All right, fair uh, enough. Again, it, it continues the trend that is going to continue even. Uh, some good movies with good sets. So going on with a sort of new, uh, another neo-noir film, but now new, is the brand new film from 2021, The Card Counter, that's now available on Blu-ray. This is written and directed by cinematic classic Paul Schrader, who doesn't always... Doesn't always knock it out of the park, to be sure. He's made some pretty bad movies, but he's made some all-time best-of movies, too. But I felt like the card counter here is the best thing he's personally wrote and directed for quite a while. That being said, I was not a fan of First Reformed, so if you were, you might be like, what? I thought First Reformed was better. Well, okay. But for me, this was great. And this stars Oscar Isaac. He plays a guy named William Tell. We meet him. He's counting cards that he learned to do during eight years in military prison. But he goes to casinos and he's like, what the guys who's like, I never bet big. I never leave with a lot. I just have enough to get by and slowly build a nest egg here, which is all I'm trying to do. And casino people don't mind him. Right. Cause they're like, whatever. He's not a guy going in there trying to take, you know, you know, totally rip the house off. We know he's counting cards, but he's himself says the casino doesn't give a shit as long as you don't get greedy. It's like, okay. Fair enough. So that's a, a neat kind of way to live. He gambles all the time. He lives out of two suitcases, stays in motels, uh, and weirdly covers all the furniture in plain sheets and secures it with twine. You're like, I wonder if that will be relevant later. Yes, it will. Uh, but he meets a friend from the gambling world, Tiffany Haddish, as La Linda, who's like, come on, you really should come and work for me. I have a group of investors who back gamblers at big poker tournaments, and I you know, would be willing to stake you. And at first, he's like, no. But a little bit later... When he's going to, he slips into a, a, a seminar that's being held by a, a retired military major. And uh, while he's there, he this young guy comes up to him, Cirque, played by Ty Sheridan. He's like, hey, yeah, that guy is a monster and I'm going to kill him because he basically, you know, killed my dad. And it turns out that he both, in fact, the, the kid's dad, the general and the main character were all at, uh, what do you call it? Well, they weren't at Guantanamo. They were at a, they were at a prison that right. was modeled after the way they treated prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. Same thing. Might it, as well have been. Yeah. And it was one where they ended up taking pictures themselves, and basically all the people who took pictures, all the the low level peons, went to jail, and all the people who actually ordered everything to happen got away scot free. So, and so the, the movie focuses on. Uh, Oscar Isaac's character, the, the the card counter, who's one of those guys, and basically the whole thing is this character study of somebody who went to jail and thinks that he still deserves to be in jail for the rest of his life. Yeah, and, and it's like you know his way of processing all this is just kind of that thing he learned in jail: just keep your head down, move yeah. forward, follow don't the schedule, don't think about it. And uh, even though clearly we see just from some of his behaviors, like tying up all the stuff with cloth in his room, he's disturbed. But he really takes to this kid and kind of forms a paternal interest in him. But at the same time, it's him going, I got to keep this kid from doing what he wants to do because 
I need to keep me from doing what I know I need to do, you know, like, which is maybe not the same thing, but like for him is deal with it at all, you know? Uh, and I found this a fascinating story. It moves smoothly. It's really well shot. Uh, everybody is good in it. I kind of fell in love with this thing. No, I, I adored it. Uh, I, I went in knowing it was supposed to be a good movie and I'd heard it was well-written, but that was about all I knew of it. And it's shot with such a sense of dread too, that it always feel like you feel that sense of, Oh my God, things could turn. And he has the potential for this in him, but you're also watching a movie about someone trying to find redemption and trying to help redeem other people as well. So it's it's kind of a beautiful and harrowing tale. I, I loved every second of it. The, you uh, know, it's a Paul Schrader film, though, so it is going to a dark place. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they all do. <laughs> uh, everybody's good. We didn't mention William Defoe is in here playing the the, the major that uh, Ty, Ty Sheridan has told himself he's going to kill. Um, yeah, this is great. The only downside is there's only one extra, which is like five minutes like EPK look at, at traders films, but you know, that's weird. I mean, they even bothered to include a digital copy here, but barely any bonus features, which makes me yeah. think, okay, somebody like Criterion has already held up a flag and going like, yeah, we'd, uh, once y'all get through with your regular release, we'd like to take this and do stuff with it. <laughs> that would make me happy. Uh, this felt like a random low budget, not very successful movie release. And I was worried it was just kind of being dumped. But I'm, I'm happy that it exists at all, though. And to, by the way, I didn't say how great Tiffany Haddish is in here. This is yes. my favorite part by her she's played yet. And she's definitely one of the most fascinating young actresses working today. Excuse me. I think you're forgetting about Queen Whatever I Want to Be from uh, Lego Movie 2. Not, <laughs> not really. Okay. This is a far better performance. I just wanted to say that, man. <laughs> that was pretty good, though. <laughs> Uh, so we're moving on to a, another film that is, in fact, by being released by Criterion. Much to my surprise, they picked up um, the only release so far, a physical media release of Amazon Prime's movie from last year. Uh, I'm sorry, from 2020, One Night in Miami, which was a feature film directorial debut for Regina King, a very yeah. good actress in her own right. But this is based on the screenplay, stage play of the same name from 2013 by Kemp Powers. It's not true. I know a lot of people were trying. I had people tell me, no, no, it's based on a true story. I'm like, no, it's based on real people. It never happened. <laughs> um, but the idea is, what if these guys who were actually all friends in real life, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke in the 1960s got together one night and started hanging out and just talking. And it's just one of those clearly based on a play things, because it's yeah. pretty much all in one hotel room. <laughs> They, they they go to the car at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do go to the car <laughs> and to the roof. But it was uh, it got three nominations at the Academy Awards, uh, although I don't believe it actually won anything. Uh, you know, I think one of the strengths here is first off the script's really good, but also everybody playing these roles is terrific. Especially, I thought uh, Eli Gorey as Muhammad Ali. Well, at this point, he's still Cassius Clay. I thought he was just fucking phenomenal and a dead ringer for Muhammad Ali. Oh, I'm not going to lie. Every single member of the cast knocked it out of the park. Like the, the main quadrant. It, yeah. You're just watching master actors just deliver monologue after monologue about important, uh, important information that we should all hear and an important ways to view history that we should all be doing. Like With, uh, this was a phenomenal movie about race that I did not expect to coming at all. Uh, 
Again, I say King, uh, Kingsley, Ben Adir as Malcolm X, Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown, Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke, and also featuring Lance Reddick as Brother Kareem, who's basically one of the Nation of Islam, who's sort of there overseeing the making sure Malcolm X is okay. Uh, and then small appearances by Michael Imperioli, uh, Bo Bridges, and others. Bo Bridges in one of the most fascinating sequences in the film early on before they all meet up where Jim Brown is like, oh, going to visit him because they have a previous relationship of some kind. And, uh, and he's been, man, I love you. Like, this is in Georgia. And, and like, he's like, you're so great. Everybody loves you. You're fantastic. And, uh, you know, they have this nice conversation. They bring him out lemonade. They're hanging on the porch. And then they're like, well, we're moving some furniture in here. Like the daughter's like, I'm moving furniture. And Jim's like, I can go in and help. And he's like, oh, Jim, thanks so much. But you know, we don't allow N-words in the house. And you're like, what? <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. After all that. But that really just sets the stage for the problem and the idea that like that's going on, this argument that Malcolm X is having with the, the rest of these guys, which is like, look, you're just eating it up because you're super famous. Like, especially pointing at Sam Cooke, who at this point was an, an insanely popular musician. It's like, you're just sucking all this stuff up, but what are you doing? These people don't actually want you, the black man, you know, they have no respect for your skin color or your people whatsoever. And it's a really fascinating conversation that is fun to watch, disturbing to watch, but overall is just, just filled with such great performances. Yeah, no, it's phenomenal through and through. Uh, It's one of the better movies about race that I've ever seen. It was up there with, um blind spotting where it was just like holy shit wow okay i love this movie and i want to show it to like everybody i know (laughs) um yeah i I don't have much more that i can try to think of anything else well i mean that it's on criterion so it looks really good um there's a bunch of bonus features which i'm so glad because this totally deserves to have the real you know really nice and reverential treatment here i was kind of wondering why it wasn't we weren't getting a physical media release and well now we know well, I think Criterion has a relationship with Amazon because didn't they do Annette as well? I don't know. I didn't like Annette, so I didn't really pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Annette fans. Either way, but- do, go go check out One Night in Miami for anyone out there. Please do. Yeah, it's hard to know how to describe it without – because it's all dialogue based. There's not much plot. It's really just a conversation that's really relevant to the the times then and the times now with each one of these people just doing a masterful performance based on a real life character and all of whom had a sort of rather extreme way of behaving that was notable. So, well, you know, it's not an impression these guys are doing, but they are they become these people for sure. It feels reverential, but it never like goes fully into parody. It's just like, no, no, these are bigger than life characters. All right, so the extras is an essential collaboration with Regina King and Kemp, uh, Kemp Powers talking about working together on this uh, 30-minute mo- uh, thing that was moderated by critic Gil Rib- uh, Robertson, filmed in L.A. Becoming a director, Regina King talks about moving from acting to directing. Um, Regina King and Barry Jenkins, with her and fil- famous filmmaker Barry Jenkins, talk about how this got all got started uh, building characters, a new program that Regina King and the cast members all sit down and talk about how they decided to build these characters. You know, it's self-explanatory making one night in Miami, uh, Regina King, Kemp Powers, producer Jody Klein, editor Tariq Anwar, cinematographer Tammy Riker, costume designer Francine J- Jameson Tanchuk, and set decorator Janessa Hitzman talk about all the levels they were involved with uh, this film. There's a new program based on the sound design. Okay. 
and then a 20 page illustrated booklet. Yeah, this is totally solid. At the very least, even if you're not, this isn't a buy for you. I mean, it is for, it would be for me, but like Same. it's a, you must see if you have not seen it yet. And it is still streaming on Amazon. You should check it out. Yeah. Agreed. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. We're going to move on to one of my favorite gems in the rough discoveries I have made in the last year where I was just like not expecting anything good from this old fucking 1983 totally buried all but non-existent anymore like rock and roll film called get crazy i'm like okay starring fucking daniel stern of all people too (laughs) as the main character I mean, I, I saw Kino Lober was just pushing the shit out of it. We're just like, come on, come on. You guys want to review this? Come on. And I was like, I didn't even ask for it initially. And finally, I was like, okay, fine. Send me the damn movie. I'll, I'll fucking check it out. Um, and, but directed by Alan Arkush, who's better known for his work with Joe Dante. Really, his most notable film on his own was uh, Rock and Roll High School from 1979 with the Ramones, which certainly is the film you're most going to compare this film to. No question about it whatsoever. Uh, but you know, I mean, he's worked on a lot of good movies. He just was the guy who was doing other stuff on said movies, but he did some, like he did like Caddyshack too and heart beeps and some shitty stuff. <laughs> right. But this one movie is like so perfectly insane. I totally get to some extent why, even if the studio had given this a fair shake, which they did not give get crazy a fair shake, they buried it immediately. And as it turns out, it was a tax shelter. They knew before they even put it out, they were just going to fucking sink it. And that's really? exactly what they did. Cause they were like, yeah, we can do this for, for just, they're like, has to cost just between this much and this much money because that was exactly what they needed to get the, the tax shelter well, and have a, have it go well it was a bomb so and in the end they made more money from it but the God thing bless is, them. the thing is all these people involved of which there are so many like like loved this film and loved working on this film and were really mad about it and this has just been not available except for a really shoddy vhs copy that literally was out of focus at you know <laughs> that was re- released and they couldn't even find the original prints until just recently and they're like oh, oh sure. great so they did this really nice Blu-ray release of this thing. And it is, it looks really good. It looks and great. I just, five minutes into this, I'm like, what the fuck is this thing? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I did a, I did an article for another site. It was like top 10 New Year's Eve movies that I pitched. I only pitched it so I could put this movie in there. <laughs> I actually ended up watching this movie twice. Uh, once, uh, and I was working while watching it and I was like, no, no, I need to watch it again. I ended up watching it, uh, with my wife and her boyfriend and we put on my new like immersive light thing that duplicates the light you see on screen onto the wall and fuck, this is an amazingly colorful movie. This is like two thirds concert and it's all weird parody satire without any, clear movie reference and so it's just zany wacky shit happening left and right uh there's copious amounts of casual nudity daniel stern is amazing and has a monkey on his shoulder at several points during the movie there's a rabbi band playing soul music this movie is amazing i adored it yeah to be clear 
these bands are not real bands. So it's not like one of those like, oh, I'm watching a Woodstock or something. This is like supposed to be like it's supposed to be like the Fillmore East. Right. But like the the real place. But this is a fictional place that is based on real life experiences in terms of like, well, we took a lot of drugs and did shows <laughs> that I can't believe we managed to pull off because we were all so high. And this is basically that's a New Year's Eve party. There's like a very generic villain. Ed Begley Jr. is like, I'm going to <laughs> shut this place down. <laughs> Who, who's gotten like a toady that works there at the show to be like uh, to be his toady, secret toady as well. I mean, the plot, that's all for plot. Other than that, there's oh like Daniel Stern is like, they they bring back a girl who like used to work there, right? Yeah, she uh, used to do his job. Yeah, and, and uh, Gail Edwards. And they immediately have just like a, you know, he looks at her, he's like, oh, dream weaver. You know, in the whole movie, he's having these little flashing like fantasies about like them being in love and everything and various sort of Hollywood senses. But like, this is really just one artificial music sequence that's totally out of control, insane, with like some famous people, like you said, Malcolm McLaren playing basically a Mick Jagger at the height of his, you know, extreme when he's like on all the drugs yeah. and he's, fucking he's all, all cocaine and all sex yeah. and has an actual conversation with his penis at one point in the movie. Yeah, it's like the comedy somewhere between Rock and Roll High School and Airplane. I can't really it, nail down exactly so what weird. that line is, but it's just so over the top. The bands that, although fake, the songs are all actually pretty good. <laughs> I would listen to the soundtrack to this yeah. fucking film. And there's just all these weird little, com- like, a period like Clint Howard, Linnea Quigley, Dick Miller, Paul Bartell, and um, uh, Mary War- Warrenov, who often worked with him on his films, uh, musician Bobby Sherman. <laughs> Uh, Lee Ving from Fear, who's basically just playing Lee Ving from Fear if you just shot him up with amphetamines, what he would have acted like on that moment, <laughs> like, like well, turned into basically Animal from The Muppet Show. And now that I know that Alan Arkish was a protege of Joe Dante, it makes a lot of sense because there's a few direct references to Joe Dante movies and a ton yeah. of Joe Dante's uh, Rolodex of actors appear in this. Yeah, uh, and but most notably here is that Lou Reed, in one of his just a handful of acting roles in his life, but he's essentially just playing Lou Reed, although suppo- supposedly they said, well, we based him on Bob Dylan. I was like, it feels like just Lou Reed to me, but <laughs> he's like this reclusive artist who the the boss talks into coming after the New Year's Eve show, but gets like, tells the cab driver, yeah, take the long way around. And so the whole movie, the cab driver's just driving all over New York and <laughs> the, he never gets there till the very end. And then he's like, oh, is it over? Okay, well, I guess I'll play a song anyway. So you still get your Lou Reed song. But I, I don't know, man, this movie is well titled. It is it's one of the best party movies ever. I will definitely be watching this next New Year's Eve. I just kind of loved the shit out of this thing. I can't believe that this that was buried for so long. It's it's a movie you have to see to believe. Agreed. Do some mushrooms, smoke some weed, get drunk, do something, and watch this movie and have a good time. Yeah, and it, you know, a lot of the humor is super dumb, but that's just kind of part of the appeal because yeah. it just doesn't stop. It it just never stops. And there's a character who's like death or something, except they just want to give everybody drugs. Who keeps <laughs> you mean the god of, appearing. Wait, I thought he was the god of rock and roll. Uh, yeah, he's like he, Mr. Electric is what yeah, they call him. Yeah, he looks him. like death though, right? And every time, he, like, he no introduction. He just appears and the cast looks and goes, oh, it's Mr. Electric. What do you have? <laughs> <laughs> and he just hands out uh, acid. 
Just left yeah. and right. Just here. Have some hallucinogens. I mean, clear towards the end, he's like, fuck it, and just doses literally everyone. <laughs> and you're like, oh, but of course he does. And there's even like bonus features here to make this fun. Um, there's a new program, The After Party, where, where, which is really cool. I watched the whole thing with the director, Alan Arkish, uh, gets on a Zoom call talking with a lot of the people who worked on the film. You know, and this is just recorded recently, and it's super fun. It's like 76 minutes long. It's a shame it had to be on Zoom, but what are you going to do, right? Uh, but yeah, well worth watching. There's fan fiction with no gods in space, uh, which are more sort of like nine minutes of like looking into some of the, the little trivia about some of the key characters from Get Crazy. There's an episode of Trailers from Hell with Alan Arkush. Uh, there's an original music video for Get Crazy, the theme song here. There's two more music videos, both for Not Going to Take It No More by Lori Eastside and the Naked Band, which is the band that Lee Ving is actually the singer for in the movie. And there's a new comment, audio commentary with Alan Arkush, filmmaker Eli Roth, question mark, and filmmaker critic Daniel uh, Kremer. Yeah, which I'll go back and watch and listen to it sometime because this is just a new classic for me. Yeah, agreed. Uh, this is one that I'm going to immediately be adding to my own collection. Worthwhile oh, yeah. for everyone out there. I think almost anyone, I think 99% of the people I've ever met have never seen this movie and probably 85% of them never heard of it either. It's funny when I post on uh, on Facebook how, how much I loved it and how rare it was, like... I, I forgot how many harder core film nerds than me even I have on my friends list because people were like, yeah, yeah, I, I sought it out and saw it in a theater uh, revival thing. I'm like, yeah, but look at who you are. <laughs> well, fuck you a little bit. Yeah, you're like, you're like a programmer for like three film festivals. Yeah, of course you saw it. My point is most normal people haven't seen it. Look outside the bubble for a second, dude. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we're going to move on to another film. That some people view as a comedy classic that I have never seen that wasn't buried, but you might argue that it should oh. have been, which is Arrow, for some reason, got a hold of the 1988 film My Stepmother is an Alien with John Lovitz as its star and said, we're going to put out a proper Arrow release of this comedy film. So and there is a notable thing about this. It was young Allison Hannigan. Her, her first uh, film performance ever. Yep. And she's you see that enthusiasm that got her gigs after this <laughs> and led to her being cast in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, and other things. So that was cool. But the weirdest part is that the alien in question is Kim Basinger, which, you know, even in L.A. Confidential, which is a great, great, great movie, and she's fine in it. I've never seen a performance by Kim Basinger. I was like, man, that was a good performance. <laughs> too. I was like, yeah, she's not very good. And also, look, man, I know taste is whatever, but I've always gone like, I cannot figure out why people thought at the time she was like the sexiest woman alive. Like everybody at the time was like, she's hands down sexiest woman alive. I'm like, I don't see it, but okay. I mean, she's not unattractive or anything, but. Whatever. I'll admit, so, uh, I was four when this movie came out, so that is an era of cinema that I missed. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But uh, I, did, I, I just didn't see it when it came out because it's called My Stepmother is an Alien and stars John Lovitz and Kim Basinger. So, so. Fun fact really quick. I did. I watched this movie a lot as a kid. A lot. Uh, and no movie has made me question my parents' uh, willingness to show me movies so much as rewatching this as an adult. Because <laughs> it is a different fucking experience, let me tell you. 
I mean, it's my only experience with it. And I'm just like watching the whole thing going, how did this ever get made? Yeah. It's, I, it's I'm not... sorry. I, I, kept, I kept saying starring John Lovitz. I mean, it is, but really yeah. it's Dan Aykroyd is the romantic interest for Kim Basinger. Wait, hold on. Listen carefully to that again. Make sure you've absorbed it. This film has a romance between Dan Aykroyd and Kim Basinger, both of them in sort of the height of their career. I don't know that I would really call it so much as a romance, or it's more of a mutual date raping, kind of. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. <laughs> like, so she, the plot, such as it is, <laughs> um, is that Dan Aykroyd is working and sending a signal into space to see if there's alien life out there. And one day, a coat gets pressed up against a metal cage, and it sends a beam out into the further, like into another galaxy, I think. And Chris, what is happening right now? Kim Basinger. I lost the ability to say Kim for a second. That's uh, fine. Kim Basinger is an alien sent to Earth to find out what the fuck this signal was, and to get them to fix the problem it caused. Because in like two days their entire galaxy will be destroyed because of this and she, like they clearly think that earth is this random backwater planet so she does zero prep and so two-thirds of the comedy okay three-quarters of the comedy in this movie it is all just kim basinger being a fish out of water in a performance that was apparently lauded and is atrocious she is not funny in this movie. This is the one thing I'm going to disagree with you on because I he went in ready. I went in ready to, for her to be awful because everything else I've ever seen her in, I thought at best she was passable. Oh. And I was like, holy shit, she's actually really making me laugh with this performance. I actually oh. really like her. Her and John Lovitz are the two best things in this, who also, even though he's playing a very John Lovitz role, he's like the guy who's like <laughs> kind of scammy, who's like the friend of the main guy and really he would like prefer to be the one fucking Kim Basinger and he's not. But anyway, point is like the Dan Aykroyd and Kim Basinger, they end up like being together. And slowly she's like, well, maybe I like this planet and this whole sex thing. I don't know. The humor it's written terribly, but what works is the point for me is those points where it's not just a regular fish out of water. It's like there, it's another one of those, Oh, we learned everything about your culture by watching TV and movies. And so she's like thinking that's the way really talk people really talk and act. And the way she did it actually made me laugh. It's very slapsticky. I don't know. I can see. Uh, I'm not going to defend it in a court of law or anything. But <laughs> see what what I dug, and I remember loving this as a kid, is Purse the character because mm -hmm. she has this sassy, want to kill everything um, AI that lives in her purse that can do pretty much anything. Yeah, and she'll just like get into little pissing matches with it off and on throughout the movie because it keeps giving her way wrong information. Yeah. I, I dug every scene that they had together. And I, I remember the purse legitimately terrifying me as a kid towards the end. Cause there are, there's like three shots of good effects work. Like, I don't know. Mm. I loved this as a kid. I cannot recommend this movie as an adult. It was rough for me through and through. Oh, Although I'm it, still not recommending it. No, it was to be nice clear. <laughs> to see Allison Hannigan and Seth Green going on a date together in this movie. Yeah. That's kind of that's weird they didn't do more with that, but yeah. it's there, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Juliet Lewis plays like one of the, the secondary characters in here. And, you know, she's still pretty young at this point, but not like quite teenaged or anything. But yeah, she's good in this. I don't know. It's not like it's 
absolutely atrocious, but it ain't good. No, it's just, <laughs> it, it is. It's just really sexual. Uh, and I can't believe I never got that as a kid. It has this, <laughs> it has the same opening, uh, with Kim Basinger in space as Barbarella, but without yeah. actual boobs. And there's like a, uh, it gets kind of like by today's standards pretty creepy at this point because John Stewart, who's nothing but a total shameless lecher, like not mean, a good character who deserves. I'm sorry, I said John Stewart. I meant um, you did. John Lovitz. John Lovitz. Yeah, he's just a total lecher. He doesn't deserve to be rewarded in any way, and he's rewarded in the most inappropriate way possible towards the end of the film, being literally lauded and served like a like he is the master for a bevy of ridiculously hot alien chicks that dress like stewardesses and you're like nobody even then nobody went i'm not sure this guy deserves a reward for his behavior hey, <laughs> it's kind of crazy his sleaziness saved the galaxy i guess so uh there's an audio commentary by brian reisman there's directing my stepmother as an alien about 14 minutes audio interview with richard benjamin yeah actor comedy actor from transylvania six five thousand richard benjamin <laughs> directed this film uh and then there's just like a trailer and an image gallery they didn't and an insert booklet they didn't put out a lot for this this is really a niche of all niche things that it, it just period doesn't get a lot of respect but there are people who were just the right age for this you know who you know love it for nostalgic reasons who want a good copy of it well here you go here's my stepmother with an alien better get it now because i suspect nobody's going to re-release it for some time yeah. including arrow <laughs> but uh we're gonna move on to one that i've been meaning to watch for so long i've been like oh i gotta find a copy of this and watch it because when i was you know recently they did a, a remake of dirty rotten imbeciles and i think the movie dirty rotten, rotten imbeciles with steve martin and uh, Michael Caine, or if you say it like him, Michael Caine, <laughs> uh, is a comedy classic, a stone cold comedy classic, right? I've I've never seen it. Oh, dude, it's so good, uh, just amazing. I had, it was years before I found out. Oh, that too is actually a remake of another film. In fact, a film with David Niven and fucking Marlon Brando <laughs> uh, uh, called Bedtime Story 1964. I'm like, oh, well, shit, I got to see this. So now Kino Lorber has put this thing out. And guess what? Dirty Rotten Imbeciles is almost a scene for scene remake of this film, which shocked me. I was like, oh, that was the last thing I expected for it was for it to be so similar to that other film. I mean, Imbeciles goes a little crazier at points for sure. Uh, gets a little more sexy, if you will, because it was made a little later. Do, but, do you mean scoundrels, by the way? What did I say? Imbeciles. Oh, sorry. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah. Okay. What is there a movie called Dirty Rotten? Oh, that's a punk band. Never mind. I don't know. So, you kept saying it, so I figured I had to correct you at this yeah. point. No, <laughs> you should correct once. me first thing when I when I make mistakes. I often do. It's all right. I'm tired. It's been a. It was a long weekend. It's so, a Monday. I'm just like I'm still recovering. So I, I come at bedtime stories by way of the hustle, which I think goes even further and sillier because the hustle is an outright silly film. Uh, the but I, I ended up being surprisingly a little underwhelmed by bedtime stories uh like i liked the marlon brando parts but the david niven bits almost ended up feeling too slight for me i, I hmm. think that i'm a i think i'm a persnickety young guy you but might like a... scoundrels better because they definitely upped both roles in that one plus the female character in the film that they're both these con artists are have a bet 
that they're trying to woo is in in and of herself like a much bigger character with more to do and more um what do you call it uh agency yeah agency exactly which would be good because like there wasn't anything bad with the movie. This was a well shot movie. It's colorful. Uh, I liked the scenery. I like I like the cinematography. Brando is turning in a good performance. And oh, Niven, he's so funny. Like, like Niven even is doing well in the part. Like this is one of those movies that I was watching and going like, you know, I get why this movie was influential and I get why this comedy hit. It's just one of those that like isn't hitting the right cadence with me. It's just okay. never pulling me in. So it did for me, and this is with having seen both the other versions. The new one is not good, but uh, it's not. I, I'd watched Dirty Rotten Scoundrels so many times and just loved it. And this, to me, even kind of worked a little bit better because, with the exception of the, I wish that you know Shirley Jones here, who's such a great actress, like she's terrific and funny in this, and she hits all the spots she's supposed to as a sort of naive young ingenue who's like along for this ride. It doesn't realize she's being double conned. You know, just kind of for the hell of it, really, because they're like two con artists both want the other to leave town. The bet is whoever gets gets her, you know, has has to leave town. But I don't know, man, there's something like just because the original the the, the last one, the, the first remake is just goofy to the point where it points. It doesn't feel real at all. And this never quite goes over into that point where, well, this is just absurd. And I kind of liked it better for that reason. And also, I mean, I love Steve Martin, but the, you don't get to see Brando do comedy very often. That's and fair. he's really good at it. He is so funny in this part. I, I kind of dug the hell out of this. I, I dug Brando, but yeah, I, I it just didn't hit the right cadence for me. I, I think that I'm discovering, like, I'm really hit or miss when you get into films in, like, the early 60s and the mid 50s, just because the filmmaking style is one that just doesn't always pull me in. I, mm. I feel like such a little bitch going like, but it's old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're young still. Someday you'll look back. You'll be like, I like films now that are old because they're much older than me. And I feel old. Now you feel young and you're like, I'm not watching that old shit. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that like I turned 38 last week and I had this horrible moment where I realized that, Showing my son something like Tremors is like me watching something that came out in the 60s when I was that age. Yeah. It's just like, oh, oh. Whenever they fuck. do those memes, there's more time passed between this and this than there was between this and this. I'm like, I don't even know. Just don't tell me. I don't want to know. I mean, the point, like, it's it's bizarre. It's like, like, there's more time has passed between now and like, nirvana's nevermind than it passed between when i was a teenager and like zeppelin's four came out that's yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh bedtime story i liked it a lot aaron less forgiving but you know what he still liked it there's a commentary a brand new one with critics howard s Berger and, and nathaniel thompson and then just promotional materials there's not a lot extra here but really if you know, you like classic comedies. You want to see Marlon Brando do the comedy thing. This is, you know, really is a classic for a good reason. Um, and like I said, even if you love Dirty Rotten Scandals and you're skeptical, like if you love Dirty Rotten Scandals, you'll probably love this one, too. It's pretty good. But we're going to end with the film. I'm just telling you now, I'm, this is not a democracy this week. It's just the pick of the week is the Eros Shaw Scope Volume 1, because it is not just the best selection from this week a very good series of selections to pick from but it's one of the best box sets that has come out in the last year i mean it's one of the best box sets i now own like period 
the exhaustive nature of both the fixing up from old materials of these 12 films that come in this set with one of the biggest booklets with beautiful full-color pictures in it I've ever seen come with a set like this with exhaustive studies of the history of Shaw Brothers films. But then just endless bonus features. Like, so... I don't even know how many. Like, a lot of bonus features. <laughs> like, d- dozens and dozens of hours of bonus features are on this fucking thing. And I watched, like, maybe five hours worth of the bonus features, but I also watched all 12 of the movies in here. Oh, and also... Two discs with three of the soundtracks as well. Two bonus CDs if you're like the kind of person that still plays physical CDs on things. I'm just saying. It's there if you want it. I didn't know that was a thing I would do. But, you know, I'll tell you, there was a moment in one of these where I was like, that's where that's from. Where they they do a lot of the music that's from like Kill Bill first. I was like, oh. That's from that movie. That's yeah. where they got that. You know, the, some of the, the the Crazy Eights sort of like theme. And then also there's a theme that the Alamo Drafthouse plays at like a lot of their screenings and one of their commercials. And I was like, oh, shit, that's from there, too. Now I know where that's from. Yeah, uh, I, ca- I caught the Kill Bill sound and did the same squee. Uh, yeah. That was a nice moment. I was like, oh. But this has got the movies King Boxer, The Boxer from Shantung, Five Shaolin Masters, Shaolin Temple, The Mighty Peking Man, the only non-martial arts film in this set, but definitely one that was widely talked about from Shaw Brothers at this period of time, Challenge of the Masters, Executioners from Shaolin, Chinatown Kid, The Five Venoms, Crippled Avengers, Heroes of the East, and Dirty Ho. Now, I know if you know anything about uh, Chinese films, you're thinking... Um, there's a couple really important big ones missing from this, from this period. And don't worry, they've already said, not only will there be volume two, but those films you're thinking of, they've already said, yes, those will be in volume two. (laughs) So, but there's so much great stuff in here. Not all of which I had seen before. There's a lot of these. I like at least half of these I had never seen before. It was like, holy shit, this is really good and a lot of these are really notable for reasons i didn't know like uh, king boxer was kind of a really big deal when it came out um with indonesian born actor lo lay in the lead who's in a lot of films uh from the 60s and it was released as five fingers of death in the united states and it was really just kind of the film that you look at that was responsible for starting the kung fu craze in america where we were just you know, alongside slasher films and drive-ins, all of a sudden we had these uh, Chinese martial arts films, like one after another that were being released and then black exploitation films, but you know, which, you know, in and of themselves were kind of based on Shaw Brothers martial arts films, but King Boxer was the one that started it all off like the, the beginning of that, but almost everything in here is interesting and really unique for one reason or another. I mean, I want to point out Five Deadly Venoms because this first off was on Entertainment Weekly's number 11 on their list of top 100 cult films of all time. One of the few in the first top 25 that I had not seen until now. Really? And uh, Sorry? You hadn't seen the Five Deadly Venoms? I just nope. was shocked by that. 
No, never had seen it. But uh, directed by Chang Che, is one of the most important filmmakers from this period. I directed more than 90 movies and was the first film to star com- in their completion, uh, The Venom Mob, which is sort of a nickname for a group of guys who got together and appeared in just film after film after film, to either, either all together or most of them together. And they just kind of, this film was so popular, they were just kind of known as the five Venoms with everything <laughs> <laughs> after that. Uh, there's just so many little little details about the stuff in here that's cool um and as they go along you start seeing this evolution from films that are had kind of gotten away from the wuxia style the more magic and stuff and are more just sort of straight boxing and fighting and start experimenting more and more with things that were you know made up like all the crazy styles like yes some stuff is real crane style tiger style we mentioned earlier there's no dragon boxing i mean maybe somebody eventually <laughs> developed it for real but there wasn't at the time but like you know the five venoms as like oh there's scorpion style and there's a great bonus feature where the guy's like we had to figure all that shit out <laughs> like what the fuck is is centipede style gonna be oh my god <laughs> you know um, um, I, I liked lizard style where the dude just walks up on walls. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of comedy as it goes along as well. There's, and I'm, uh, I wish I had pulled up the guy here in question, but oh yeah, Alexander Fu Sheng, who is, you watch this guy and if you've ever used to watch a lot of these films, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen this guy in things. He's just this really charismatic and genuinely funny guy who was kind of the guy who changed protagonists in Chinese films from like, I am the Wang Fei Hung type who does no wrong and always stand up for the little man to guys who are kind of like more of a charming rogue Han Solo type, which is this guy in almost everything that he did. And he was being prepped to be who Johnny, who um, um, Jackie Chan ended up being. And you see it watching these films. You're like, oh, this guy's basically inventing slapstick kung fu right in front of us and pretty much did him and the, the cinematographers he was, and uh, uh, choreographers he was working with. And then like Lau Kar Lung, who's like one of the great choreographers and, and just did more of these films than almost anybody, kind of invented comedy in kung fu with this guy. And he was being going to be a huge star. He's like in the Chinatown Kid, which is a, was a big attempt to mix East and West films, which is in the set. And then he died in a car accident at like 28. Like, fuck. <laughs> but he's in several of the films in here. And you'll be like, man, that's a real shame because that dude was great. I had legitimately not seen a single one of these movies before starting to go through this set. Like they had all been on my list of movies to see. But mm-hmm. I never actually bitten the bullet on it. And I, I must admit, I'm a little intimidated by how much you know about Kung Fu cinema. <laughs> I mean, I knew a lot beforehand, but watching this set made me aware of how much I didn't know. Right. There's a lot of stuff I've been talking about here is stuff that like, no, this was new to me, too, before I started watching the set and all the bonus features in the set and reading the big book that comes along with it. And it's just a fascinating wealth of material. And like I said, these movies they move pretty fast overall. Like uh, generally speaking, I'd say there's not a bummer in this whole set. They're all really fun and kind of unique in the each unique in their own way. Um, for me, like the worst one's probably my mighty Peking man. Cause I'm not as big into the like really bad Kong King, King Kong ripoffs. As we said, I was like, it's King Kong with 
with tits is yeah. like not Which king kong having tits but like there's like the the blonde girl you know that king kong loves she like has a lot of wardrobe malfunctions in this movie she does she does <laughs> and she she at one point just randomly just like you know i'm gonna take off my clothes in general and just rock yeah. out naked yeah yeah but that's okay and you know what don't ask about why there's like a scandinavian blonde in a chinese movie where everyone else is chinese just <laughs> go with it just enjoy this weird violent king kong ripoff yeah, this is so good. And uh, I mean, and that is still, like I said, it's still fun and it's so dumb. Man, it is the worst kaiju outfit I have ever seen in my entire life. Oh. Like, they didn't even bother to put black around the actor's eyes no. wearing the mask. So you can totally just see, like, the big space where it's just like regular guy eyes yeah. <laughs> around. It. Well, You're and, like, what the fuck? Every time they do a scream, uh, a Peking man scream. They have a prosthetic head that they use, but the skin doesn't quite fit. So yeah, the I, mouth stretches and distorts <laughs> in weird shapes. It actually kind of adds a bit to the horror, I thought. Yeah, and, and it looks nothing like the costume for the guy. No, not even a bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend this set more enough. I know you didn't have time to watch more than a few of these, but then they're all worth watching. And it's funny, you may think, as you told me before we got started, like, I don't think I'm as, as much into this period of martial arts films. But as you start watching them straight through, you start kind of seeing more and more what they're doing. And you realize, this is dance. I'm watching dance and really yeah. elaborate, beautifully choreographed dance. And after a while, it's just like, your brain just locks onto it. You're like, okay, I kind of love this now. Okay. <laughs> I could keep I, watching these things all day. I'm going to keep watching the rest of the set. So like, I, I definitely want to see them all. Well, anyway, that is it for this week's digital noise. Wow. We did pretty much just Ooh. an hour. That's a remarkable for us, Aaron. I know I'm on time <laughs> under budget. I'm doing the right thing for one. It's because I just like shut up a lot, you know, just like, you know what? Chris got this. Chris got this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I I'm the one who's not drinking, which is this week. You know, <laughs> usually when you can't shut me up, that's when you know. Oh, Chris has had a few. <laughs> this week, I think I'm just like uh, exhaustively slap happy. You know, you know, it's a good state to be in. He ran a good show. Congratulations. <laughs> that's why I'm saying things like dirty rotten imbeciles and, <laughs> and uh, uh, John Stewart instead of the proper things. <laughs> Oh, well, if uh, I hadn't already put my foot down about the Shaw Scope set being number one, what would have been your pick of the week? Oh, it would have been Once Upon a Time in America. Like, okay. that was such a phenomenal set. Or in China. Bit, bit. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in China. You know, I blame you. You wrote America in the email. I just read what I Did saw. I? Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's that's my fault then. Yeah, I sure did, didn't I? But, but no, anyway. I would have picked the Once Upon a Time in China set. It's a legitimately great release as well that does just as deep a dive just into a different era of martial arts. So it was nice to get both sides of it, just like the 70s and then the 90s snapshot. Well, we're going to end this episode because I can't bear to see Aaron torture his dog anymore. This is horrible, Aaron. Stop torturing the dog. What are you Stop doing? Don't you. flick his thing. Why are you flicking his thing? He doesn't like that. Oh, God. Ew. What is his thing? You know what his thing is. You're yeah, the one baby. flicking it. Oh. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you, Aaron. And uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of Digital Noise. Thanks, everybody. Can't wait.